The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This is another recording from the Te RSA Forum Meet, held in September 2016. The speaker is former Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot, Barry Irvine. Our next guest speaker uh, is a gentleman that I've uh, had the privilege to spend a bit of time with in the last couple of days, uh, another flying boat captain. Um, this is Barry Irvine. 
Afternoon all. Uh, I'll just cover fairly briefly, I hope, my uh, career in the Air Force in New Zealand. My interest in aviation started um, as a uh, sixth form student at Nelson College. I had been talked into joining the uh, town squadron of the Air Training Corps by a friend and that's what fostered my interest in aviation. And in my last year at college I was fortunate enough to be given a a flying scholarship from the Air Force um, because of my association with the Air Training Corps and that was done by my squadron commander of the Training Corps who was also an instructor at the Nelson Air Club. So it gave me 30 hours flying on uh, Tiger Moss. Uh, finishing college in uh, 1954, it was off to Wigram next in January of 55 to do my CMT with the Air Force and that was again on uh, Tiger Moss. And uh, Air Force life sounded pretty interesting at that stage, and uh, flying was marvellous. So um, I signed on as a regular on a four-year contract. So having completed the uh, CMT at Tyree on the Tiger Moss, it was off to Wigram to do the uh, Wings course on Harvards. And uh, while we were there, for some reason there was a flyover of a uh, Sunderland one day over the airfield and that really impressed me, that aeroplane. And uh, having talked to others in the Air Force about uh, the fact that there was a squadron based in Fiji flying these things, I thought I'd like to be a part of that. And towards the end of our uh, wings course we were asked what we'd like to go on to, next aircraft in the Air Force, uh, multi-engine or single engine as it may be. And uh, I requested Sunderland, so those of us who were going on to multi-engines went up to Ahakia to what was called the multi-engine conversion unit, and we flew Devons, learning the differences between a single-engine multi-engine aircraft. And from there it was on to uh, Maritime Operational Conversion Unit at Hobsonville on the Sunderland. Uh, we had to fill in a little time before the course itself started, so we went out on numerous flights with the uh, regular crews that were there. And it involved a whole new lot of learning, of course, um, as well as rules involving aviation. We had to learn the rules of the sea. Spent a fair bit of time on the water. And um, the primary means of navigating the uh, Sunderland offshore was through um, astro-navigation using a sextant. So we also had to uh, do a lot of practice with sextants reducing uh, sun shots, star shots, shots of the moon. And uh, it was a very varied course because on any aircraft conversion course you have to learn all about the different aircraft systems. And uh, everything was very different about the Sunderland, particularly its handling on the water. And uh, learning how to do astro-navigation because there were very few other navigation aids of any use beyond a few miles from the shore. So uh, after that course, um, so I posted up to Lasala uh, Bay and I was assigned to a crew who in a week's time after I was getting there was uh, off to Tahiti for a detachment. But you can guess who wasn't allowed to go as an extra pilot. The cost, I suppose, was a bit much, but the crews were based there for several weeks, going around the Pacific Islands picking up um, samples of fallout from British um, ABOP tests in Christmas Island. 
And the stories then came back telling us from their life and uh, Tahiti was um, something to make one very envious. However, I missed out on that. Um, life on the squadron there involved um, what every unit in the Air Force does, a lot of handling practice for the pilots. They had to do a certain amount every month of pure takeoffs, landings, day and night, instrument approaches um, or instrument flying where a pilot would be uh, denied the outside view, block his uh, vision there, so he had to concentrate purely on the instruments. And that was a uh, skill in itself because you had to learn, and it took some doing, to ignore your basic senses where um, balances um, indicated the brain through your eyes and the three semicircular canals in every ear. And uh, they could give you totally um, misleading indications as opposed to what your flight instruments were telling you. So, um, the night flying technique in the Sunderland was very different to those in the daylight land-based uh, aircraft. Where with a wheeled aircraft, you float down the rate of descent on final approach, and as you neared the ground, you reduced that rate of descent until you hopefully got the wheels only just above the ground, and as the airspeed decayed, it would just settle very gently onto the ground. But uh, with the Sunderland, um, the system was the uh, control launch would go out on the bay, and Lasala Bay was an absolutely perfect place for operating Sunderlands. Very large lagoon inside a, uh, a reef, so sheltered water. Uh, you could take off and land in virtually uh, any directions, depending on where the wind was. But at night, the control launch would go out and would sweep an area of the intended landing into wind, and lay only about five flares spaced very well apart. They were really only a guidance as to um, where the wind was. And your technique was to set the aircraft up on a long final from 1,000, 1,500 feet at a moderate rate of descent with the aircraft fully configured in the landing configuration aiming to touch down just inside the uh, first flare. And because you had no real indication looking out front of just how far you were above the water in the last few feet. The technique wasn't to round out or flare an aircraft as you do with uh, landing on a runway, but to just fly it onto the water at that rate of descent that you'd set up a long way back. Needless to say, some people got a bit higher rate of descent and she tend to bounce a bit, but you could recover by putting on some more power and easing it onto the water. But uh, you didn't have the visual reference that you have with a um, runway and lots of runway nights where looking well up the runway you get a very clear indication of how close the ground is. So that was a new uh, experience. And the other work done by the squadron there, apart from the uh, pure handling, uh, navigators would be given uh, nav exits to do. Uh, there were frequent uh, anti-submarine exercises. Um, held down in New Zealand where uh, forces from Royal Navy, Royal Air Force would come out uh, together with a submarine. Uh, similarly from Australia we'd have Air Force and Navy representation, occasionally an Australian submarine. And there'd be exercises out in the um, Haraki Gulf or further afield in uh, learning how to um, locate and track submarines. Setting up these exercises, um, there'd be a confined area within the exercise was to take place. And to give the aircraft a fair chance, the submarines were required to um, either be on the surface or travel at their uh, 
snorkeling depths so that the aircraft had an opportunity to see them. They weren't there just to obey the aircraft all the time. But uh, once they'd been detected, then it was up to them to take evasive action. Um, I'm not sure if you know what I mean by a snorkel, but if the submarine's running at periscope depth, they would have a device above the surface so it would um, draw in air so that they could run the diesel engines instead of running on batteries all the time and exhaust the uh, exhaust fumes out of that. So um, they were very interesting exercises those. The um, main means of detecting them from the Sunderland, visual came into it certainly during the day, and uh, there was a uh, surface radar in the aircraft. That was also uh, quite good. But um, as far as tracking underwater meant, the systems were fairly limited. Um, we carried sonic boys, um, just a vertical boy that had a um, detachable hydrophone, or if you like, an underwater microphone. Then on impact with the water, it released that, which went down to a certain depth, and transmitted uh, noises that were picked up underwater back to the, uh, the aircraft. It was fairly basic stuff in that there was a uh, sonics receiver down below in the uh, wardroom, and the signal will go down there and listen in to the various boys. The different boys just had a um, letter of the alphabet assigned to them, and each letter had a different frequency. So uh, these would be dropped in a specific pattern. A uh, tactical navigator upstairs would be told uh, uh, which boys were going out, and he'd mark their positions on a special chart. And uh, after they hit the water, it would be a matter of the um, signal downstairs listening in on his headset and just through his experience assigning a signal strength to what he heard on each boy. Hopefully if you'd sighted a submarine or um, you'd come across one on the surface and you dived or you picked up his um, snorkel on radar or visually, you'd have some idea of where to put your pattern and hopefully you'd pick up a signal on one or two boys and if you got a signal on two boys the tape nav upstairs would draw a circle around each one commensurate with its signal strength which would give you a possibility two positions so you try and uh, track the submarine using that system and uh, if you thought you were lucky enough and on to it um, the weapons carried in the submarine, depth charges and um, that was pretty much it. It was fairly basic stuff. So the exercises were always debriefed and uh, when you came back, if you hadn't found the submarine, you'd be told where it had been. If you had um, found it and you'd made an attack, there would be a uh, practice charge dropped out of the aircraft to indicate the submarine that had been an attack made on it. And um, in dropping depth charges, you didn't try and hit the submarine, but you dropped two depth charges. There was a bomb room in the submarine and a um, bomb rack on each side, which would be loaded with the, um, the weapons. And the idea was to straddle the submarine, dropping a couple of depth charges. You went athwart ships, not along its length. And um, that was about it as far as uh, any submarine weapons went. The aircraft developed the uh, reputation of being called a porcupine, I think, during the Second World War because of the number of weapons it had on board. In terms of guns, there was a uh, front turret, uh, fixed forward guns that the pilots could fire, a rear turret, 
The RAF sergeants had a mid-up turret, uh, but that wasn't fitted to the New Zealand aircraft. And as was mentioned in the photographs we saw earlier, in the beam hatches just after the trailing edge of the wing, on each side there was a 0.5 half-inch uh, machine gun. It was interesting the first time I uh, had a go in one of the turrets and fired bullets out, there were only 303s. And you could virtually see them departing the turret and arcing down pretty soon into the water. Whereas the 0.5 guns in the beam, they had a fair bit of punch. And uh, provided you weren't aiming too far away, the bullets went where you had the gun pointing. Except that being on the beam, you had to allow for the aircraft speed. So when the bullet left the gun, it was trailing forward at the speed that the aircraft was too. So allowance had to be made for that. So um, coming down to a, uh, an exercise in New Zealand when I was just a uh, fairly new fellow in the squadron. I was a younger pilot. We'd often carry three for long flights. It was a night flight down and um, I did my two spells upstairs and uh, came down had a bunk in the wardroom so I went to sleep down there. And throughout the aircraft there was a system of horns that the pilot would use to signal a letter T prior to takeoff, a letter L prior to landing, so the whole crew knew, crew knew that there was a takeoff and about to be made. Uh, the L being sounded for landing down in Auckland here woke me up and um, because of the wind direction and speed that night, we had to land way up by Rangitoto which meant a pretty long taxi up to Auckland, maybe an hour, hour and a quarter, depending on how the tide was running. So um, after the landing, I just settled down and went back to sleep. Until some time later, there was a horrendous wallop. And because we were coming down for an exercise, we were carrying a lot of solar boys and stores, and things were flying around the aircraft that hadn't been restrained in all directions. And uh, the technique at night taxiing up in the Sunderland um, the front turret would be wound back and a crewman would stand up in the bow with an eldest light, shining it up ahead to make sure the path on the water was clear and particularly coming up the hobby channel where there are a few bays on the north shore and a few headlands sticking out. It was most important that he picked those headlands out with the lamp for the pilots to see. There was no lighting guiding the aircraft up the channel. So things were uh, Going right, the guys decided they'd put the aircraft up on the step. That's the deepest point in the hull, that little point. So um, put some takeoff power on. The aircraft would ride up onto that step and pull some power off. And with only a little bit of the aircraft in the water, it would steam along about 80 knots, which was good. Cut down the time of getting up to Hobby. And that's what the pilots had decided to do. And things were going well until the men up in the bow had to shine his elders down instead of the water being just a few feet below the aircraft. It was a significant difference down. So he called up to the pilots and said, do you, need, you guys know you're airborne? Because they hadn't realised it. The water was very smooth, there was no noise against the hull. And uh, they just cut the power immediately and the aircraft dropped back onto the water with a horrendous thump. So it was kind of chaos inside for a while. And because these solar boys were uh, designed when they got a sump on the end to drop the hydrophone and start transmitting, a number of these things had turned themselves on. So we had to get a man on the sonic set and he'd listen in and uh, call out, oh yeah, this boy's transmitting. So the crew had to go around the aircraft and find that particular boy and turn it off and so it went on until things were secure. However, we made it up to, up to hobby eventually with no damage uh, done. But that was... Um, 
something stuck in my mind for quite a while. Um, the rest of the uh, task up at uh, Fiji, um, searches played a large part, um, boats going missing, some were um, pleasure boats that um, people had been caught out in rough weather and had hit a reef or due rough weather had sunk and they maybe seen out a uh, mayday. And uh, the old boat um, went onto a reef. Um, there was an occasion when there was a Russian vessel coming down and as was mentioned, I think, you know, we were just talking amongst ourselves. It was in the country's interest to track this thing. So uh, the aircraft followed it for a few days. And um, other medical mishaps in the Fijian group. Um, sometimes there'd be a call for an aircraft to go out, pick somebody up who needed hospitalisation, which wasn't available on the smaller islands, bring them back to uh, Suva, to the hospital. And uh, one notable trip I did, there was an ex-RAF group captain, retired, he lived on the northern of the main islands in Fiji, Vanolimu. And uh, the base got a message that he was pretty seriously ill, needed to come back to Suva, go to hospital. So I was sent up there to pick him up. And uh, we landed inside the reef, and he, landed, he lived at the head of a big bay, uh, just a very narrow entrance to this bay, very sheltered inside, so we managed to get the aircraft inside. And um, Fijian crew came out on the uh, boat, and uh, just to confirm what we were there for, we mentioned that uh, we were here to pick up a group at Nomali. And we asked these people if he was um, very sick. Oh yeah, he's very sick. So um, they got him to come down and we saw this team of Fijians carrying the stretcher down the hills at the far end of the bay. Eventually got him on a boat, brought him out to the aircraft. And I might say he was uh, sick or right, he was dead. So um, we let them know back at the other bay that we'd bring his body back to uh, Suva. And uh, that went off all right. Uh, they had there to pick him up and took him away and did whatever had to be done in his last moments. So uh, that was the kind of life that we led. Um, there was a forward base established up at Tarawa as well, where there was accommodation built and um, uh, facilities to cook and uh, have meals. And periodically crews would be sent up there on a detachment, which would extend their uh, area of taking patrol very extensively. And, um, Went through there on one occasion up to um, Singapore, where we used to go occasionally for CETO exercises as well as the Philippines. But um, this one was at Singapore, so we used to transit through uh, Tarawa. From there, go to um, another island called uh, Kwajalein, where the Americans had a, an Air Force uh, land base, and they also had a uh, seaplane. Uh, facilities there, they take their marlins through there occasionally. And had a very interesting um, mooring while we were going through, uh, or when we arrived at Quadrilene. Uh, the system for mooring the Sunderland was to wind the front turret back. There was a little platform right up in the bow that a crewman could uh, stand on, and there was a bollard that um, hinged up from fixed down below and fixed it in position so you could. Uh, wind a mooring rope around it, 
Also a small ladder, three or four steps that you can put over the side on the uh, left hand side for a crewman to uh, climb down if he had to, to uh, attach himself to uh, get an attachment around the buoy. But the American boys were uh, very small, they called him just a donut boy, only uh, very low in the water, no wire cage on them that you could uh, pick up, just a floating strop, eight or ten feet of floating rope shackled in the middle of the buoy. But uh, when we went through, it was a very rough sort of day, strong wind, and sometimes the problem with uh, coming up to a buoy in the sunlight was to reduce the speed. Uh, you could shut down the inboard engines, which was normal, just travel on one and four at idle. And uh, in the galley, there was a hatch on each side, and inside that uh, hatch was a pretty large drogue which could be put out to help slow the aircraft. And uh, it was normal to approach into wind, keep the speed down, approaching a mooring buoy. And beyond that, all that one could do, uh, both pilots would flick the ignition switches off for a period, and let the uh, motors run down, and put the ignition switches back on before it stopped. And that was all you could do to slow it down. But we had no trouble this day with the strong wind uh, positioning the nose of the aircraft right at the top of this little donut buoy. Men climbed down the ladder at the side, and he was down there for an interminable time, which didn't make sense because all he had to do was pick up this floating line, pick it up, and hook it over the bollard. Anyway, after what seemed like a stupid time, we got the thumbs up from the guys in the bow, so we cut the one or four engines, tidied the aircraft up downstairs, got our gear together, waiting for a launch to uh, pick us up, take us ashore. But while sitting in the wardroom, I was looking out through a porthole and I saw a um, mooring type boy going past from the stern to the front of the porthole. I thought, that's kind of strange. You know, we're heading into wind. Anything that was loose would be blowing from forward to stern. So up to the flight deck and um, having a look out front and the boy we should have been tied onto was way, way up ahead of us. The clever fellow who did the mooring, for some reason, had unshackled this floating rope from the buoy, taken that end up and wound it round the bollard, and we're tied onto about eight or ten foot of rope. That was all. I've never to this day worked out how that happened. Anyway, we got it back up and attached everything, put on the permanent mooring and got ashore. And next day it was off to uh, Guam, where the Americans had a uh, flying boat base with the facilities there. And... Um, from there up to Singapore, carried out the exercise there and uh, same way back. Saw an interesting takeoff at uh, Singapore from one of our aircraft going off to do an exercise because they've got a lot of fuel on board, stores, and um, pretty heavy. This was about midday, no wind, high temperature up at Singapore, and this thing headed off up the straits. And, um, we watched its progress just to see it go, and um, when you put on takeoff power in the sun, after a little while it would ease up onto that step, that bottom point of the hull, where there was very little water drag left, and uh, you would accelerate, get takeoff speed, and lift off. But this thing never managed to get up onto the step because the water was so smooth and was just sucked down onto the water. In conditions like that, if you knew you were going to have a problem, you'd ask the control launch to um, 
fly across your intended takeoff path and create a bit of a chop in the water. Or failing that, just gently rock the thing to rock it up onto the step. But this wasn't done in this aircraft. Uh, we timed it. It was two or three seconds short of five minutes before the thing got up and got airborne, which was uh, getting on to the limit of takeoff power, I imagine. Anyway, um, the exercise went off all right, and we hit back to uh, the Bay the same way we went up. So those were interesting exercises. And um, towards the end of my uh, time on that posting, I came back to uh, New Zealand, and I was um, posted to the flight that was flying the Devons at Wigram, and uh, we flew them for the navigator and uh, signaler trainees during their exercises. It was getting near the end of my four-year term, so a group of us, um, three who joined on the same course as myself, and myself went up to Auckland to talk to Teal as it was then, to see if there were any prospects of employment. The other three were taken on, but uh, I missed out because I didn't have a commercial uh, pilot's license. Having spent my time in Fiji, you couldn't sit a commercial license up there. Notwithstanding all the trained Air Force pilot had to do was set regulations, and the rest of the exams were credited. But anyway, I missed out, so I asked the Air Force if I could have a two-year extension. They said, uh, we'll sign you on for 12 years and you go back to Fiji, or goodbye, sort of thing. Air Force life was good, and... Uh, Life in Fiji and the flying boats was good, so I signed on for the 12. And after a bit of a refresher at um, Hobson Hall, back up to Fiji. I got a command there and um, went through the same sort of life that was experienced previously at Fiji. We went up to um, the Philippines a couple of times for CEDAW exercises there. And um, these were based at uh, naval Air Station, US Naval Air Station, Sangley Point, just a little way away from Manila and the bay there. The um, US Navy had an, an airfield there as well as flying boat facilities. So uh, no problem with the moorings or anything like that there. And um, the exercises were mounted out of there. And all went well and um, on the way back, we went through um, Kwajalein again. And I think it might have been at uh, Tower because the crews that flew the aircraft at the end of a sortie had to refuel the aircraft. You'd leave a refueling crew on board, four or five guys. And at a place like Tower, the fuel was always shipped up there in 44-gallon drums. And the locals would just bring these drums out in the barge with a big stack pipe and an ordinary handheld wobble pump to pump the fuel up. Fueling was done over the wing by the crew. They'd throw a um, ball with line attached up. The crew would catch that, pull the uh, refueling hose up, undo the caps on the top of the wing, and um, put the fuel into tanks as required. An interesting uh, refueling there one day. It must have been a new man on the crew. And um, after a while, we got this cry from the guys down on the barge. Uh, guys are taking an awful lot of oil today, how much do you want? <laughs> you can probably guess what happened, this new man had the oil hose and the fuel tank. And uh, the guys on the barge were used to how much oil we used to take, but this was going away with it, so I guess we had some pretty rich running engines for a while after that was picked up. But, um, yeah, going back to the Philippines with the exercises there, um, 
We were given a pretty um, sound security brief on arrival at these places because each of the American bases in the Philippines had these honky-tonk towns would um, develop outside the perimeter fence. I guess they employed a lot of uh, locals, but um, I could only think that life was pretty cheap in the Philippines from what we were told. And uh, it was made very clear that if you're going off the base at night into these townships alongside, you only took your ID and enough money to uh, see you through the night. No watches, no rings, because people would be knocked on the head just to take a ring off the finger, or hard to get the ring off, they'd chop the finger off. They played pretty hard, and I guess that's been borne out by the remarks of the current president of the Philippines, who in recent days has said to the public at large, if you see anybody who's dealing in drugs in any way, shoot them. So life still hasn't got a lot of meaning at times in the Philippines. So um, at the end of my um, posting up there then, it was back to um, Wigram to do an instructor's course. So that was done at Central Flying School on Harvard. And then I spent a posting at the Flying Training School teaching new pilots the ways of the Air Force and flying on Harvard. After that, up to um, Air Force Headquarters in Wellington, where I was doing an administrative job, and part of it was associated with the assessment and purchase of the P3s, which was interesting. And at the end of that fairly short posting, I was posted back to um, Hobson for a quick refresher on maritime, and uh, over with some of the initial crews to pick up the P3s. We started the course down at Naval Air Station North Island, which is at uh, San Diego, adjacent to a very big naval station there. And we learnt all about the new flight instruments in the P3 which are vastly different to the Sunderland together with the different um, anti-submarine warfare sensors on board and how they operated uh, the tactics involved with them. And then it was back up to Naval Air Station Moffat, just at the bottom of San Francisco Bay to do the flying conversion. So it all went well. We did one or two tactical exercises as part of the course with uh, US Navy vessels off the coast. And um, I was taken down with a uh, Navy pilot and crew to um, Burbank, Los Angeles, to pick up um, the fourth P3 from Lockheed. Because um, the RZF couldn't buy the aircraft from Lockheed, they weren't allowed to sell them to us. We bought them from the US Navy, so the US Navy signed for them, took it back to Moffat, and from there we um, only had a few flights left. Um, I remember doing an air test on the fifth aircraft that came up from Lockheed, and um, a bit of handling just with our own crew, no US Navy people aboard. And then it was a delivery flight back through um, Barbers Point overnight, overnight at Nandy, and back into Phnipai. And I was appointed as a training officer there where we had to set up um, conversion courses for pilots, navigators, signals, and the other um, sensor operators based on what we've been through up in the States. And I've uh, got courses underway fairly soon. And we also had a new um, assignment of a crew member, the, uh, the ordnance man. 
got uh, one with us today, who have flown with us for quite a while, and he was responsible for the armament on board and uh, loading the um, sonobor chute, which was down aft and uh, still using sonobors for sensing underwater submarines. And because it was pretty close to the galley, he became the chief cook and bottle washer. And uh, most of the meals, to be fair, I suppose, were pre-prepared and loaded on board. But he was still involved to a big extent in uh, preparing meals for the crew and distributing them as he could. And uh, I find that even these, well, these days, having been out to for the last couple of days, the ASW, its anti-submarine warfare sensors, have gone entirely from what we were used to. Completely new sensors throughout the aircraft. Um, we used to have a uh, searchlight on the P3, but apparently they had a serious fire on one, one night after I left the squadron and uh, they were taken off. We used to be able to fire flares out either side of the uh, tail for uh, light illumination photography. They became a bit uh, dangerous, so all that's gone. And um, completely new look. Crew members have different designations, called different things. In a tactical situation, they still have the TACO, tactical officer, who used to be the chief navigator in our day, and he called the shots during tactical flight, not the captain of the aircraft, captain of the as was directed by the TACO, flying maneuvers to detect track a submarine. So it's a completely new um, aircraft. We used to carry um, one homing torpedo on the P3, but they still carry those. We didn't get to practice drops very often because they were very expensive items. <coughs> and, uh, while they could recover and practice one, uh, still cost a lot of money. And um, the scene has changed immeasurably, I find, these days. And um, towards the end of my time on the uh, P3, I was faced with um, going back to uh, a posting at uh, Air Force Headquarters in Wellington. And I was the Maritime Ops man down there, involved in a lot of administration, setting up exercises for the bicycle people. And I came to realise that um, the two group captains I'd worked with on my Wellington postings hadn't really enjoyed their jobs there, and I thought, well, as a career officer, this is the kind of um, role I should be aspiring to. And um, while I had been up in Fiji, I'd been offered a permanent commission. My thinking at the time was, well, I'm due to get out on a 12-year contract at age 30. You're far too old to get into civil aviation. So I had signed on permanently. But um, having had another period in Wellington, my thoughts have changed a bit. I didn't fancy doing administration type work for the rest of my life. And I spoke to my boss about it. And um, he was very understanding. There was at that stage a very good relationship between uh, New Zealand and, and the Air Force. And that uh, New Zealand welcomed ex RNZF pilots because of their experience and training, as opposed to people who just come up through the air clubs, got a fairly minimal amount of flying experience and I was told that um, when the job came up they wouldn't consider letting it go. So I had kept in touch with um, the ops manager in New Zealand 
I subsequently posted up as a uh, maritime ops officer in Vanupai and uh, at one point assigned to go up to the Philippines to uh, act as a ground ops officer for an exercise. And I thought I'd hate to be up there when the job just came up out of the blue with New Zealand, so I contacted them before I went and they said, no, I can't see anything coming up for some time. You can probably guess what happened. Halfway through the exercise, a signal came up from um, the Air Force going on a Tuesday saying that uh, New Zealand have offered you a job starting next Monday. If you can get yourself to uh, Singapore on Wednesday or Hong Kong on Thursday, New Zealand will fly you back and you'll start a course on Monday. So the captain was amongst the pigeons at that stage. We spoke to the Americans and uh, those involved with the exercise and they said, well, the uh, RAF have got an aircraft going back to Singapore on Wednesday. See if they'll take you. They said, yes, we could take you. Subsequently turned out, no, they'd read the flying program incorrectly and they couldn't manage. So we're up to uh, Wednesday and the Americans were very helpful trying to get us out. And they said, well, we'll fly you up in an air club aircraft to Clark Field, which is just a few hours north, or a few hours by road, not long way. So <coughs> when they found we had, uh, our, when I say we, there was another pilot involved, and um, we had suitcases, and they said, oh, airplanes are too small. So they said, we can take you up by road, but there's one stipulation. You've got to arrive in uh, Clark before nightfall, because we don't allow any of our vehicles on the road after nightfall because of the threat of bandits on the way. So it was a quick pack of the bag and uh, back down to the transport section and this other fellow and myself um, hopped on and they took us up to Clark Air Force Base there and we checked in with their movements. Yes, they've got an aircraft going tomorrow. Yes, about room on it after telling them who we were and why we were there. And the guy said, oh, you better just show us your passports, make sure everything's about board. And he looked at them and said, oh, God, we can't take you. On the face of it, you haven't arrived in the Philippines. Having come into a military base, there's no immigration stamp on the passports. Somehow or other, they were very helpful and got us around that. So got on the aircraft the following morning. They'd given us a PA as to how long the flight would take up to uh, Hong Kong. But time arrived, started to drag on beyond that. We were wondering, surely we're not diverting somewhere else. But after a while we landed, it must have been an air traffic control holder. So we uh, got off the airplane, collected our bags, and um, tried to find an airplane that uh, had a New Zealand marking on No sign of one. So this is really strange. There's been another goof off somewhere. Not realising that civil operators come into an airport, offload the passengers and baggage, take on a new load, and they're gone within two or three hours. So we didn't realise the aircraft wasn't due for a few hours. So locked our bags in the locker at the airport caught a bus into town and went to the Air New Zealand office and told them who we were while we were there and they rang the, uh, the uh, people back in Auckland here and the ops manager said, is that where those guys are? I'm wondering what had happened to them. He said, yeah, put them on the aeroplane. So um, Thursday night we were on the aeroplane back to Auckland, got into Auckland Friday morning, cleared the Air Force that day and on Monday we were on a course with Air New Zealand down at Mechanics Bay. So that was my time in the Air Force really. Um, Although we'd been flying the P-3 and the New Zealand was still operating the Vectra, basically the same aircraft, they put us straight onto the uh, DC-8. No reason to complain. And uh, that was my career with the Air Force. Any questions?
No, I must say it was all enjoyable and uh, thoroughly good company, good flying, adherence to rules, which made a big difference, and thoroughly enjoyable. But I just couldn't stand the thought of half my life being behind the desk. Thank you for your attention. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.